I'll be reading this morning from Nehemiah, the 8th chapter, beginning in verse 9. Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 9. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn nor weep. For all the people wept when they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat, drink the sweet, and send portions to those for whom nothing is prepared. For this day is holy to our Lord. Do not sorrow, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites quieted all the people, saying, Be still, for the day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all of the people went their way to eat and drink, to send portions, and rejoice greatly, because they understood the words that were declared to them. I like to make lists in my Bible studies, and I like to list events that I would like to have been present for. I don't know if you've ever done that, just in thinking about the different accounts in the Bible that you read, but what days would you like to have been there to see? Nehemiah 8, I think, would almost always make my list. In Nehemiah chapter 8, the people of God assembled for the first time in a really, really long time. They had rebuilt the wall of Jerusalem, and they were assembling specifically on the first day of the seventh month to hear the word of God. That's what they came together for. It had been a long time since the entire nation of Israel had heard God's word. That wasn't God's intention, of course. That wasn't his plan, but it certainly was the reality of the case. And the Bible says that the people were making this a renewal of their covenant, as it were. They came together, and the Bible says that they had built a big platform so that the priests and Ezra the scribe, they could be there and they could read in a way that all the people could hear. And the Bible says in Nehemiah chapter 8 that when they opened the scroll, that all the people stood up, and it was everybody. It was the moms and dads, it was husbands and wives, it was parents and grandparents, and even the children. And they stood up and they listened, the Bible says, all day long while those priests read from the book. They read God's word. In Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 8, the Bible says, they read in the book in the law of God distinctly. And they gave the sense and they caused people to understand the reading. When you get a new phone, you have to activate it. And in the process of activating the phone, there is always a screen that pops up, terms and agreements. And you're supposed to read the terms and agreements of use for that phone. And most people, if you're like me anyway, there's a little blue button at the bottom and it says, agree and continue. And the terms and agreements, I have no idea what they say, but I will agree and continue because I don't have time to sit and read the terms and agreements. I just want to agree and continue. And so 
Those terms and agreements I agree to, I have no idea what they say or what they imply for me. I just know that I want to activate the phone and I want to get on with my life. There are a lot of people that treat God's word like the terms and agreements in activating a phone. Yes, I I know this is important and I know this has some implications for what I'm doing. I I know that this book has some things to say to me, but it's really not something that I'm all that interested. I've got better things to do. I've got to get on with life. I've got things that I need to accomplish. But then you get to Nehemiah chapter 8, verses 9 through 12. And what you find in that passage is that when the people finally stop treating God's word like the terms and agreements, and they actually listened to what God said to them, they were heartbroken. The Bible describes them weeping and mourning. The Bible describes them as as being saddened because they knew that they had hurt God. They knew that they had violated the terms of the covenant. They knew that they had not kept up what God commanded them to do. But Nehemiah and the priests and others spoke to the people and said, the way you're reacting is reasonable But this day, this day is holy to the Lord, and the joy of the Lord ought to be your reaction. The joy of the Lord is your strength. And a couple of lessons that I get out of Nehemiah 8 are these. In the first place, God's word is not just terms and agreements for you and I to click and bypass. It's something that we ought to think about. It's something we ought to hear. And it's something that ought to sink down deeply into our hearts and minds. A second lesson is this, when I really listen to God's word, it's sometimes going to break my heart. When you and I really listen and think about what God is saying to us, it's going to break our hearts because we'll hear and we'll understand that we're not what God intends for us to be and we need a savior. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, Romans chapter 3 and verse 23. But a third lesson I get from Nehemiah chapter 8 is this. There is joy in knowing the God of heaven. And we know him because we read and understand from his word what he thinks and how he feels and what he desires for us and what he desires of us. We learn those things by listening to his voice, to listening to his word. Rejoice in the Lord, the joy of the Lord shall be your strength. It's about that third lesson that I want to talk to you this morning. Do you rejoice in the Lord? Is joy in serving and knowing God something that really characterizes you? Because I'll tell you this, God intends for that to be the the reality. God intends for us to find joy in knowing and enjoying and appreciating Him. As a person, as a being, God wants us to know him. And there is joy to be found in that relationship. So much so that Paul reminds his brethren in Philippians 4 verse 4 that they're to rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Repeated for emphasis. Let's think about that concept for just a few moments this morning. Rejoicing in the Lord. First, I'd like to share with you some passages some passages, and most of these are from the Old Testament book of Psalms. But I believe that God has always, always, always intended for people to know Him and to find joy in knowing Him. 
There are some people in life that you just really click with. There are some people in life that when you see them coming, a smile comes to your face. There's people in life that you meet that just because of the relationship that we have, I just enjoy being around those people. You enjoy being around those, those friends, those people, those loved ones. God wants us to have that kind of relationship with him. He wants us to have the kind of relationship where there is joy in his presence, where there's joy in just knowing him and having a relationship with him. That's what we're talking about this morning. And listen to the way the psalmist put it, by inspiration. This is God communicating to us what he desires and what he wants us to think about him. In Psalm 16 and verse 11, the scripture says, You make known to me, talking about God, the path of life. In your presence, God, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Brethren, the Bible indicates that God wants his people to enjoy his presence. He wants his people to realize that there is pleasure in his company, that the joy of the Lord is to be our strength. And not just a little bit of joy, the Bible describes here fullness of joy, something you'll never find anywhere else. A second passage to contemplate, Psalm 37, verses 3 and 4. The psalmist writes this, trust in the Lord, do good, dwell in the land, and befriend or feed on his faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. What's being said? In God's presence is fullness of joy, Psalm 1611, delight yourself in the Lord, Psalm 37 verse 4. God intends for there to be an association with him and with joy in our lives and in our relationship with him. Do you delight yourself in the Lord? More about that in a few moments. Another passage to contemplate, Psalm 40, verse 8. This is actually a messianic prophecy, but think about what's being said. I delight to do your will, O Lord. Your law is within my heart. When you love somebody, when you care about somebody, when you're enjoying somebody and being in their presence, you don't want to do anything to hurt them. You don't want to do anything to wrong them. And so the psalmist is writing by inspiration, I delight to do your will, O Lord. Your law is within my heart. I want to please you. I want to serve you. It goes on to say, in the book it is written of me, I've come to do your will, O God. Speaking about Christ and what he was going to do. Delighting to do God's will. It's not just a, well, I have to do it. If the Bible says I got to do it, I got to do it. No, we're talking about somebody who enjoys God. I delight to do your will. It's my joy. Another passage, Psalm 63 and verse 1. A few weeks ago, we had a water crisis. Lack of water causes all kinds of problems, doesn't it? Causes all kinds of complications in life. Think about being in the desert and being hot and being thirsty and wanting nothing more than water. I'd give anything for a drop of water. That's where the psalmist was when he wrote these words. Listen, and he's talking about his relationship with God. He says, oh God, you are my God. Earnestly, I will seek you. 
My soul thirsts for you. My flesh longs for you, faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. When somebody is genuinely dying of thirst, there is no price they would not pay for a drink of water. And the psalmist is saying, that's how much I love you and want to be in your presence, O God. So much so that I will seek you earnestly, just like a thirsty man in the desert would seek water. Is that how we feel about God in our relationship with him? Another passage, Psalm 70, verse 4, the psalmist writes, May all who seek you, God, rejoice and be glad in you. It's not just the things God gives us. It's not just the blessings he pours out. We're thankful for those things. We're glad about those things. But that's not what this passage says. It doesn't say, I'm thankful that I've got a house to live in and a car to drive and food on the table. It doesn't say any of those things. It says, may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. It's a relationship. It's knowing God. It's having a relationship with him. It's hearing his voice, listening to what he says and knowing how he feels and wanting to be in his presence and be with him. That's what's being described here. May those who love your salvation say evermore, not God's salvation is great. God is great. Let those who love God say that God is the object of our joy. God is the object of our affection. God is the one in whom we find satisfaction. We're thankful for what he does for us. We're thankful for the blessings he gives us. But it's him. He's the one that we enjoy and he's the one that we want to be a part of. That's what's being communicated. A New Testament passage. The words of Jesus, John 15, 11. Jesus says this to his apostles. I have spoken these things to you. There's God's word. That my joy, Jesus says, may be in you. So Jesus taught things to his apostles so that his joy would be their joy. And that your joy, apostles, may be full. There's the idea, the concept of fullness of joy, once again, that we saw back in Psalm 16, verse 11. And what the Bible is communicating is there is joy to be found in knowing God, in having a relationship with God, in appreciating God just the same way that somebody that I love dearly, that I haven't seen in a long time, comes around the corner And you long to throw your arms around their neck and you're glad to be in their presence and catch up on what's been going on. That kind of relationship every single time we come into God's presence. It's rejoicing in the Lord. Passages to ponder. There are many, many more that we could add to this list. Secondly, this morning, why? Why should my chief joy be in God himself? I'm thankful that Jesus died for me. I'm thankful that I've been saved from my sins. I'm thankful that I have a hope. I'm thankful for all that God has given me, but the joy that I have ought to center on and be found ultimately in God himself. Why? Number one, because it's God's will. We just read John 15, 11. Jesus said, I want my joy to be in you and I want your joy to be full. And the way your joy is gonna be full is through knowing my heavenly father, having a relationship with him. 
1 Thessalonians 5.16. It's actually the shortest verse in the Bible. I know the shortest verse in your Bible is John 11.35, Jesus wept. But the shortest verse in the Greek Bible is 1 Thessalonians 5.16. You know what it says? Rejoice always. That's what it says. Rejoice always. Very short, staccato, succinct, to the point, and ignored by many people. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Philippians 4, verse 4. It's God's will. Okay, let's do a thought experiment for just a minute. Reasons to rejoice. Heaven is a place of unending joy. Would you agree with that statement? Heaven is a place where there is unending joy. Even now, in the presence of God, there is fullness of joy. The angels are singing God's praises. They're singing for joy even now. Why? What causes heaven to rejoice? What are some of the specific things that cause heaven to sing praises? Because I I would submit this morning that the same things that cause heaven to sing are the same things that ought to cause me to sing and rejoice. So let me suggest to you four areas in which you see heaven rejoicing. Number one, heaven rejoices in everything about God himself. When you see passages in the Old Testament describing the angels in the presence of God, they're always singing and crying out things like, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, Isaiah 6, verses 3 and 4. The whole earth is full of his glory. The psalmist says in Psalm 63, right after talking about being in the desert and longing for God, in Isaiah 63, verse 3, he says, because your loving kindness is better than life itself, my lips will praise you. That's how he thought about God, your kindness, who you are, what you do, everything about you is better than life itself. Exodus 15, 11, Moses cried out and sang, who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you? There's nobody like God, holy, powerful, wise. Everything about God himself causes heaven to rejoice, but secondly, the creation, the works of God. You want to think about God and about a relationship with him, focus on these two areas especially. What the Bible says God is, how he feels, what he's like, what his nature is, focus on that, but then also focus on what he does. Psalm 9 verse 1, I praise you with all my heart, O God, and my lips tell of your mighty works. Psalm 19, verses 1 through 4, the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows his handiwork. When God works, he always does the absolute perfect thing. Always. And heaven rejoices to see the creation and the works of God. But third, what causes the angels to sing? Watch this. In Luke chapter 15, three times... In three parables about lost things, the lost sheep, the lost coin, the lost son, three times Jesus mentions joy. And specifically in Luke 15, verse 7, he says, there is joy in the presence of the angels in heaven when one sinner repents. I'm glad when people change their lives. I'm glad when people turn and go God's way. I'm glad to see that. But I'm glad for them, yes, I'm more glad... Because God and his way have once again been proved to be the best way. That's why the angels sing. 
They sing because sinners repent. They sing because God is magnified and glorified in what is happening when someone turns back to God. Number four, why do the angels sing? Why does heaven rejoice? Because of the salvation and the blessings that God gives. Ephesians 1 verses 3 through 11 speaks about the blessings that God has given us in the heavenly places. Every spiritual blessing, Ephesians chapter 1 verse 3. The Bible speaks about how we need to appreciate the joy that comes from knowing God and the salvation that he provides. In Mark 7 verse 37, when the people looked at Jesus after he had done many miracles, they said, behold, he's done all things well. He makes the blind to see, he makes the mute to speak, the deaf to hear. He does all things well. Reasons to rejoice. Number three this morning, as we think about rejoicing in the Lord, as we think about finding our chief joy in him, what are some obstacles to this? What's going to hinder us from really rejoicing in God and making him our chief joy? Let me suggest the following. We're going to struggle to rejoice in God because, number one, of distractions and trivialities. Things that are mundane, things that are pointless, things that press for our attention but really take our attention away from the things that we really ought to be doing and really ought to rejoice in. Deuteronomy 6 verse 5 goes right to the heart of this and it says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. Love him completely. Scripture says in Hebrews chapter 12 verses 1 and 2 that we are to lay aside every weight, the sin which so easily besets us and run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. What did Jesus do when he went to the cross? He saw joy. He saw a relationship. And Jesus said, I will do what is required because I want the joy of knowing you, of having a relationship with you. What's going to keep us from rejoicing in God? Strife and contention, fussing and fighting, that's exactly the context in which Philippians 4, 4 is written. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. If you read verses 1 through 3, there were two ladies in the church that were having a spat, a feud. And the Bible tells those two ladies to talk about this and work it out. And then it says rejoice in the Lord always. When we're fussing and fighting with each other, it's going to rob us of the kind of joy that God intends for us to have in him. What's going to keep us from rejoicing in the Lord? How about a troubled and hurting heart? The loss of someone close to us. The loss of something really important. Frustrations and anxieties about the present and about the future. Let not your heart be troubled, Jesus said. John chapter 14, verse 1, and again in John 14, verse 27. Sometimes the troubles and the stresses and the sorrows of life can keep us from thinking about the one in whom all our joy is fulfilled. What are obstacles to joy in the Lord? How about rejoicing in things, quote unquote? Don't love the world, don't love the things in the world, 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. 
Don't fall in love with stuff. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. Luke chapter 12, verse 15. Being possessive of things and thinking about things and wanting things can keep us from rejoicing in God himself. What's going to keep us from rejoicing in the Lord? Wrote heartless religion. Just going through the motions, but our hearts are not really being given to God. Singing the words of the songs, bowing our heads when the prayers are being said, going through and doing religious-looking things, and yet not really thinking about the one that we are connecting with in all of this. We connect with God in our worship. We offer the praise, the fruit of our lips, Hebrews chapter 13, verses 16 and 17. And that's what God intends. Jesus said, your hearts may be far from me, even though you honor me with your lips. Matthew chapter 15, verses 7 through 9. We are not to have a rote, heartless type of approach to God. What's going to keep us from rejoicing in the Lord? Some people believe that rejoicing and sacrifice are mutually exclusive. If I'm not if I'm enjoying my relationship with God, if I enjoy Him, and if I'm, I'm looking forward to being in His presence, well, doesn't that kind of mean that the sacrifice is, is not really a sacrifice? No, not at all. Psalm 43, verse 4, speaks very clearly about bringing offerings and rejoicing in praise to God. Those two things are not mutually exclusive. We bring to God, when we come together on the first day of the week, when we come together to worship, when we sit down with our family and worship, we are bringing to God gifts and offerings, sacrifices. Every time we worship, we're bringing Him our concentration. We're bringing Him our obedience. We're bringing Him praises. And when we do that, it's a sacrifice. It's something that we're giving to Him. That doesn't mean that there can't be joy in doing that. Quite the opposite. God says, when you give, give with a cheerful heart. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. There are a lot of things that can keep us from really rejoicing in God. Let's not let these obstacles do that. Finally, this morning, the practice. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. What does that mean very practically? Does that mean that God wants me to be happy all the time? I'm never sad. I'm never discouraged. I'm never going through difficulties. No, that's not what it means. So what does it mean? Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. I give you these ideas to think about. Number one, we ought to remember the following. Everybody, every human being longs for the joy that can only, 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 only come from knowing God. Everybody longs for that joy. You were built for that kind of joy. When God put Adam and Eve in the garden, he didn't give Adam and Eve a nice car and a nice house. He gave them himself. He said, I will walk with you in the garden. I will have fellowship with you in the garden. I will be with you in the garden. That's the way we were built from the very beginning. In Ecclesiastes 3 verse 11, the wise man said, God has put eternity in the hearts of men. And you want to know what your neighbors are looking for? You want to know what your friends are looking for? And you want to know what you really deep down are looking for? You're looking for the joy that only comes from knowing and understanding and having a relationship with God. 
That's what people are looking for. Some people get discouraged in that search and they settle for much, much less. And you ask them, are you happy? Are you fulfilled? Are you satisfied? And they might say, yeah, but there is fullness of joy to be found in God's presence. In Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24, let the man who rejoices rejoice in this, that he knows and understands me, says the Lord. Secondly, remember this. Every one of us chooses the object of our joy. Psalm 37, 4, delight yourself in the Lord. He will give you the desires of your heart. Delight yourself in the Lord. Choose him as the object of your joy. I have chosen in my life a lot of things that are the objects of my joy. I chose my wife, for example. I'm glad she chose me too. She is the object of my joy. I chose her above every other woman that lives on this planet. She's going to be the object of my joy. I chose to love Texas A&M. I'm sorry for those of you who don't, but I chose that. And it's the object of my joy when the football team does well. I chose that. Wasn't born that way. It's just what I chose. The same thing is true of you. You choose your favorite sports teams. You choose what you like to shop for. You choose what kind of clothing styles you like to wear. You choose what kind of cars and trucks you like to drive and buy and look at. You choose the things that you rejoice in. Everybody does. Why not choose God as the ultimate object of your joy? In other words, knowing him, having a relationship with him, I'd rather have that than anything else. And if it, it came down to it, I would give up everything else in order to know him. Isn't that what Jesus says? If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me, Luke 9, 23. Isn't that what he's teaching? Knowing God, we choose. Number three, think about this. We talk about what we enjoy the most. The things that we really, really, really rejoice in, the things that you really enjoy deep down inside, that's what you talk about. Psalm 106, verse 2, who can utter the mighty works of God? Who can declare all his praises? Who can do that? The implication is in Psalm 106, verse 2, that if we do know God and if we do rejoice in him, we're going to talk about him. We're going to speak about him. Just in casual conversation, we talk about who he is and how he's blessed us and what a joy it is and a privilege it is to have a relationship with him. We choose who we rejoice in and what we enjoy the most we talk about. And then this to consider. Brothers and sisters and friends, when you and I truly rejoice in the Lord, it leads us to act in love toward others. Because that's who he is. In 1 Corinthians 16, 14, the scripture says, let all that you do be done in love. Where does that come from? Why would I treat somebody with love that disagrees with me politically? Why would I treat somebody with love that disagrees with me philosophically about what life is all about? Why would I treat somebody with love that has animosity and enmity toward me? Why would I treat somebody with love that treats me that way? 
Because my chief joy, you see, is in the Lord. My relationship with him affects in a profound way my relationship with everybody else. It has to. My relationship with him, love him with your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and then love your neighbor as yourself. Joy in the Lord leads to living and treating others with love. And then finally, a lack of joy in the Lord is going to lead us to heartless type of behavior. Heartless behavior. We treat people in a calloused, heartless way sometimes, and it's a reflection of the fact that we don't pay attention to God's heart, and we don't think about who He is, and we don't think about how He feels. A lack of joy in the Lord is going to lead to heartless behavior toward others. In Romans 1.31, a catalog of various sins, heartlessness is found right in the middle of that list. Same thing with 2 Timothy 3, verse 3, heartlessness. And 2 Timothy 3, verses 4 and 5 goes on to say, these people have a form of godliness, but they deny its power. Why? Because they don't truly rejoice in the Lord. What does God want from you and me? This is a fundamental brass tacks kind of thing. God wants from you and me that we accept his invitation to know him, to know who he is, to have a relationship with him that lasts not just through this life, but into the next as well. And the way that God has made that relationship possible is through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ at the cross. There was no other way that we could truly rejoice in the Lord unless Jesus died for us. And because Jesus has died for you, all you have to do, all you have to do is humble yourself and come to Him in faithful repentance and be baptized for the remission of your sins. Declare loyalty to Him. It's the beginning of a relationship. It's the beginning of a rejoicing type of lifestyle. It's the way God always intended for you to live. Rejoice in the Lord. If you have a need to put on Christ in baptism this morning, or if we can help you in any way, won't you come while together we stand and while we sing?